I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. This week, we're talking to El Paso Times reporter Lauren Villagran, who covers immigration and the U.S.-Mexico border for The Times and the USA Today network of newspapers. The journey of Cristian Gonzalez Perez and his family of four is not particularly unique, insomuch as his was one of thousands of families bused to other parts of the country, sometimes for practical reasons, sometimes for political reasons. They were four of the 10,713 asylum seekers who took the same route to New York on city chartered buses. The family captured the journey on cameras provided by the El Paso Times and the USA Today Network. As Lauren notes, it was just hours earlier on October 19th, exactly 35 days after they left Venezuela. Gonzalez Perez and his family had lined up in the parking lot of El Paso's Migrant Welcome Center. They smiled into the cell phone cameras as the bus idled beside them. Lauren and Times photojournalist Omar Ornelas were not allowed to be on that bus, but they flew to New York to meet the family when they arrived, and they continued chronicling the family's journey. This story was a collaboration between the El Paso Times and USA Today for the fifth episode in the series States of America. The full episode of States of America exploring the migration crisis premiered on November 25th on USA Today Network's streaming channel. You can also find it on YouTube. This week, I'm grateful to have Lauren joining us. First, Lauren, thanks for uh, joining us this week on The Reporter's Notebook. Thanks for having me again, Damien. It seems like every time you're on the podcast, you've just come back from some sort of crazy adventure in far off lands. I wish I was on the podcast more often then. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just kind of start at the beginning. Where did the idea for this story come from? How did this come to be? Well, as you know, I cover immigration and the border. So the busing of migrants to New York and Washington, D.C. and Chicago had been a storyline all summer long. Both Governor Greg Abbott's busing program from South Texas to cities in the Northeast. And then about midsummer, El Paso started offering a similar program. Now, the intentions of the city and of Greg Abbott were really couldn't be more different, I think, in terms of why they were doing the busing. But the outcome was in many cases the same, both for the migrants, you know, in their journey to their destination and for the cities that um, that were on the receiving end. Sure. So how did the El Paso Times decide to approach that particularly when it comes to the two dichotomous political approaches, I suppose. I mean, I was really interested in, in, in the reasons behind the busing program. You know, immigrant advocates have said for a long time that logistics, uh, especially during and after the pandemic, were one of the hardest pieces of the immigration puzzle to solve. 
So, you know, the folks who are getting released by Border Patrol had been deemed by Border Patrol to be, you know, not criminals. They've all had a background check and they are individuals that are being given an opportunity to seek asylum or some other legal immigration status. So we're not talking about every single person who crosses the border unlawfully or irregularly. We're talking about a group of people who... Um, you know, are being released by Border Patrol for, for the reasons I just mentioned. But once released, you know, El Paso is not a huge transportation hub and other Texas border cities have even less than than we do in terms of, you know, direct flights out of town or, you know, buses to destinations like Florida or New York or Illinois. And there can be a backup. So, you know, the shelter system that exists in southern New Mexico and in El Paso has always been the place that will absorb people for a couple of days while they get their travel plans in order and connect with their sponsors in the U.S. You know, it could be a mother, it could be a father, it could be a cousin, an aunt, somebody right. who's willing to, you know, pay for the ticket out of town. And what began happening earlier this year um, was a large number of people, especially Venezuelans, who were coming to the U.S. hoping to seek asylum or other immigration relief and who didn't have a sponsor. And in many cases, didn't have hardly any resources at all because, you know, Venezuela's falling apart. Its, its economy is in shambles. The currency is worth nothing. Um, and so they, they were coming here with less than even almost every other migrant group that had come before them um, and, and couldn't leave town. So that's where the buses came in. This is really, and I think this kind of plays off what you just said. This has kind of become the largest exodus in the Western hemisphere for a variety of reasons. Do you want to explain what some of those forces are, Lauren? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, as with all mass migrations, there's usually a number of factors at play. You know, as I just said, the the regime of Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela um, has really run the country into the ground. Professionals are earning something of the equivalent of like $20 per month. Migrants have told me repeatedly that what they could earn in a month isn't enough to feed them for a few days or or you know, a week. And um, at the same time, there had been a very large movement of Venezuelans to other countries in South America in recent years. So Peru and Colombia together had taken in something like three million Venezuelans. But the governments in those countries also kind of shifted their position on the Venezuelan migrants um, during the pandemic, as happened with a lot of countries. You know, the pandemic stressed the economy. And when that happens, Residents and citizens often, uh, you know, will will start to blame immigrants uh, for their problems. And so Venezuelans encountered, you know, a lot of issues in, in Peru and in Colombia and began to go back to Venezuela only to find things even worse than when they had left. So people began uh, coming north. Now, you know, there's there's also factors in the U.S. that are important. You know, we have a recovering economy uh, or had a recovering economy uh, during the beginning of this this migration kind of as the pandemic was waning. And you also have a situation in which the U.S. government is constrained. We don't have diplomatic ties anymore with Venezuela. So Venezuelans cannot be 
deported. And that means they also couldn't be directly expelled to Venezuela under that public health authority known as Title 42 that people have talked a lot about. And so the word began to spread that there was an opportunity in the U.S. You know, you have this combination of poverty and political strife in country and then, you know, the, the knowledge that the U.S. wasn't going to send Venezuelans back to Venezuela. And so for a period of about, you know, five, six months, word spread and people began leaving en masse. Yeah. And the, the family that you profiled, the Pettis family, they actually kind of fled to Peru. And I believe that Christian worked in fast food there. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, he he was his family was a real victim of of the regime in a lot of ways. You know, he's a little older than his wife, Katiuska. But Christian uh, Gonzalez Perez uh, had studied. He'd gone to college. He, he wasn't able to graduate because of the situation there. But he had studied to be sort of like um, like a health inspector in an in industrial space. But, you know, there was no future in that in Venezuela he went to Peru, he worked in the fishing industry, you know, they scraped by and went back to Venezuela and just really couldn't make ends meet. And so picked up he, his wife and their two young children, uh, five-year-old Brittany and three-year-old Moises set out on this route north that is thousands of miles, um, you know, traveling by bus and on foot, really just an incredible journey. They shared photos with us. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because between August and October, the city chartered 294 buses from El Paso for nearly 14,000 migrants at a uh, federally reimbursable cost at uh, $8.9 million. Can you sort of explain to our listeners how that program worked? Sure. And and part of the reason why we did this story is because we wanted to understand better how the program was working. So we know El Paso decided to take this on in part because Border Patrol was releasing Venezuelans into the community. They didn't have a sponsor or anywhere to go and they became a homeless population. No one wanted to see that. It was a lot of families. There were children sleeping on the street. So the city of El Paso, as well as El Paso County, um, began to sort of figure out, all right, what are we going to do to help move these people along to their destination of choice? And in many cases, it was New York. That's where everyone was saying they wanted to go. And El Paso began chartering buses. Now, um, that I think it's $8.9 million is federally reimbursable. It's been a little bit of a struggle working with FEMA to get the money reimbursed in a timely fashion. And I know city officials are are working on that, as well as Congresswoman Veronica Escobar's office. But in the time frame that they sent these buses, 294, as you said, between August and, and October, this family, Christiana and Katiuska and their children were among those who wanted to go to New York. And we asked for permission to ride the bus. I mean, we thought it was important from a documentary standpoint to say, well, what are the conditions that the migrants are traveling in? What are we paying for? You know, are people being treated uh, with dignity? And we were not allowed to ride the bus. But in partnership with USA Today, the El Paso Times provided uh, for the duration of their journey a 
small camcorder and a cell phone so that the family could keep in touch with us and let us know what was happening on their 2200 mile journey to New York. And it really was fascinating. Is it worth noting at this point that El Paso is a democratically run city in in the political context? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's important because uh, Governor Greg Abbott has gotten a lot of flack nationally from you know, all sides for his busing program. Now, I think that there was something of a, of, of a different uh, intention, right? There there was no communication in many cases between Abbott's office and the cities where he was sending people. But at the end of the day, democratically led El Paso ultimately sent far more buses to New York. Of those 14,000 migrants, more than 10,000 uh, went to New York and uh, during uh, Abbott's, um, the period of, of Abbott's busing program in the summer, at least, um, he had not sent nearly that many people to the city. And so New York was really put on the spot to find, a, you know, find, a, find if not a home, um, receive folks in a way that wouldn't create a homeless crisis there. Going back to the Pettis family, how long did it take them to get to New York? So we know that the the journey was uh, was about 40 hours. The really nice bus they took off on in El Paso was replaced with a much older model around Dallas about 2 a.m. It, it was a functioning bus. We know that some of the other buses that were sent did break down on the way to New York. Uh, this family did not have to endure that. But it was really um, interesting, Damien, to see like through this family's own eyes, their first impressions of the United States of America. And every single stop was a Love's gas station somewhere in America. <laughs> I, I saw <laughs> that, I saw that, that. In, in your story. Like it's from loves to loves to loves. I, I can't. It, it's such a strange thing to think that this is what all of these migrants who have traveled their only you know, more experience. Than 10 countries. Yes. Yeah, their only <laughs> the experience throughout America is a love truck stop. That's right. And then they arrive um in New Jersey, so when you when you get to New Jersey and you're you're on the turnpike and you're headed towards Jersey City, you know, you can see Manhattan, the Manhattan skyline kind of rising in the distance. And, that's, and you know, that's it really seems like of, a city on a hill. Yeah, that's kind of when they they all sort of came to life. Do you wanna describe the migrants reaction when the bus pulled into the city? After 40 hours on the road, they finally approached New York City. Wow, Kalilo. Kalilo. It's an idyllic vision of a city that's welcomed immigrants for centuries. Yeah, so, you know, Katiuska and Christian were filming all along their journey and spent a lot of time, you know, talking with their fellow travelers about all they had been through. And there's this moment where they glimpse New York for the first time. And it's this moment of, of wonder and relief and excitement after such a long journey. And it really felt timeless to me. It made me think about, you know, what my own great grandparents might have experienced upon approaching 
Ellis Island uh, when they crossed the ocean from Italy and seeing the Statue of Liberty. You know, this is a, a group of people who is crossing at the Ellis Island of the Southwest, right? At El Paso right. and whose destination is ultimately the city that has for generations welcomed with open arms or not, you know, migrants from all over the world. So it was really, it was really impactful. And I think in this case, they were met with open arms and and we are going to get to that but i want you to kind of share that anecdote from your story where they were told you're welcome in new york oh this is really beautiful you know there is actually a lot of controversy in new york right now mayor eric adams has um, asked el paso to stop sending migrants there aren't currently migrant buses um, leaving for new york right now but you know things can can change on a dime in terms of you know immigration patterns but when they arrive in New York, there was a group of volunteers. These are not city officials. These are volunteers who every day are getting to the Port Authority bus terminal around five in the morning in the cold and on their own, greeting the migrant buses as they arrive. And one of those folks is um, a guy, a, a Puerto Rican named Power Malu, whose parents immigrated from, from Puerto Rico. And, you know, he describes himself as the son of, of immigrants and a New Yorker. And he gets on the bus and he gives them this speech. And he says, you know, no matter what you hear on the news or what anyone may say about you, displacing people or wanting people's jobs, just know that it's not true that if your family wasn't here 500 years ago, that 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 they're immigrants too, and that you belong here and that we are welcoming you to make a life here. And he just, you know, he does this all in Spanish and everyone on the bus just erupts in cheers. And as you mentioned, you know, as far as support services go, it seems like there has really been a kind of grassroots effort to cobble together something resembling a safety net for those new arrivals uh, while they're trying to get on their feet. Yeah, that's right. The city of New York is definitely putting up money. So they have opened their homeless shelters. They have, as El Paso did, sort of rented en masse hotel rooms in the city right. to put families up, not individuals, but families. Individuals are largely going into the homeless shelter system. But, you know, it's thousands of people. Um, but it's also cold in New York. And New York is wildly expensive. So I think a lot of the, the Venezuelans who are arriving picked their destination from the movies, you know, or because that was the, the one place that they knew of and that they had heard of. You know, we as um, your listeners, um, you know, people who have lived a long time in New Mexico or uh, are, are American citizens, U.S. citizens, you know, we know how difficult New York is. It's not for nothing that they say if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere because it's really hard to make it there. And they're all facing that now. You know, in your story, you wrote something that I thought was just beautiful. You said migrants are only migrants for a time. Before they fled Venezuela and lost hope their country could change, Gonzalez Perez and Leal Moreno were something else. And I'd like for you to kind of dive a little deeper into that shift in perspective. You know, my young daughter asked me one time, what's a migrant? And so I really had to think about the answer to that. And that's how I answered her. I said, you know, 
migrants are only migrants for a time and anyone can become a migrant depending on their life situation. You're a migrant while you're on this journey from one life to another. And most have hopes that the one they're headed to is going to be better. And I also think that when we cover immigration as journalists and when as, you know, U.S. residents, we we watch immigration news on TV, it's really important to remember that migrants are people and that anyone can become a migrant um, and that it's not a defining characteristic about, you know, who you are or what you're going to do in the U.S. And so they had a life in Venezuela. You know, Katiuska, the mom told me, you know, it was really sad for her to leave her family behind. She left her mother behind. She had worked in her mother's hair salon. You know, she she loves her country, but it just became impossible and she saw no future for her children. So her only goal was to get somewhere where she could put them in school and that they would be treated with dignity and have an opportunity, you know, for an education and for a better life. And um, yeah, I, I guess that's that's what most people who are trying to get to this country want. Lauren, you've covered immigration for 10 years. Is that shift in perspective something you had thought about before reporting this story? You mean about sort of how we think how, about how migrants? How we are only migrants for a time, you know? Yeah, it's been important to me for a long time to take care with language and to not just throw that word around in a way that dehumanizes people. And so when we write our stories at the El Paso Times and we write headlines you know, I, I think we, we really do try to take care with the way that, that we describe people who, as um, some in Mexico will say, I kind of love this this euphemism that you hear a lot in Juarez among immigrant advocates, which is just call migrants people who are, quote unquote, in a situation of mobility. But as euphemistic as that is, it actually gets closer to the point, which is that you were talking about travelers. You were talking about people who are in a situation in which they have no, no home yet. And yeah, you know, I, 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 I people are migrants and we use that, we use that word and I don't think it's a pejorative by any stretch, but you no, know, when no, you watch well, TV, that it can be used, um, you know, as a weapon almost. But I wonder how that also plays into identity. Yeah, I mean, you don't you you do hear people talk about themselves as migrants. Nosotros somos migrantes, or you know, um, nosotros los migrantes. But people don't continue to define themselves that way once they've reached their destination. Right. That's really interesting to me. Your story ends with the Pettis family arriving in Times Square for the first time. And there is a palpable sense that their whole future lies ahead of them. Spoiler alert, Damien. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's OK. People can know that they they, they, they know from the beginning that they do arrive in New York. Um, I mean, anyone who's been to Times Square knows or who has seen a movie knows that when you get to Times Square, it is just it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming America, American capitalism. Yeah, I mean, you just, just look up sensory overload. 
completely you know it's packed you've got all of the marvel and the disney characters everyone's dressed up and you know charging 20 dollars a photo <laughs> you look up and there's lights everywhere you turn you've got the you know the nation's major news organizations they're they're sort of ticker tape running through with with headlines right. and every product you ever saw in a movie is being advertised uh, people from all over the country are you know trying to buy tickets to a Broadway show and, you know, take photos. And, and, and so it is like a really iconic place. And I think for Katiuska and Christian, the way that they explain it is it still just didn't even feel real to them. You know, if you can just even imagine the journey they had been on and then to arrive in this place and to be physically standing there. And I've continued to keep in touch with them. And I can tell you that like on their social media and the, the kind of images that they're sharing they keep going back. They're staying near Times Square and they keep going back there and sending more and more pictures. And um, it's definitely a place that I think is going to to be seared in their memory as their first experience with the United States. What lies ahead for them as they seek legal asylum in the U.S.? I don't know, Damien. It's going to be really complicated. It's very hard to win an asylum case without an attorney. They have no money. The clothes that they have have been donated by New Yorkers. They're getting a little bit of refugee assistance through the city of New York, and they have a place to stay until January. But the reality of life in New York, of starting a new life in New York, is really going to start to hit after the holidays. I know Katiuska desperately wants a kitchen. You know, it's all well and good to be put up in a hotel. But if you've got two kids and nowhere to cook for them, you know, it's 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 really a hardship. So I don't know, you know, I hope to stay in touch with them and continue to follow their journey. And, you know, I've wished them all the best and hopefully, uh, you know, they'll be able to share their story. And, and hopefully, you know, if, if we ever hope that journalism has an impact, it's that it brings, you know, viewers and readers closer in touch with some of the big issues that, um, that are being discussed at a political level. So hopefully we can you know, generate some understanding for for their plight and, and the plight of others. I, I suppose that, you know, part of this podcast is about pulling back the curtain. And uh, one time we recorded a podcast about Title 42, we did. which was eaten by a uh, technical malfunction. Where do we stand right now with Title 42? And do you want to give a brief explanation and then just kind of fill us in on the latest? Sure. And I really hope this version doesn't get eaten by a technical error. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, me too. So Title 42 continues to be litigated in the courts. Title 42 is the health authority that allows uh, U.S. border authorities to quickly expel migrants. Really, for, for any reason, it has nothing to do with whether somebody actually has COVID. Mexico is now accepting Venezuelans under Title 42. So that is why you have not seen as many people coming and why the busing program ultimately stopped, because U.S. border authorities are quickly turning Venezuelans back to Mexico, along with Central Americans and Mexican nationals. One of the court cases, the judge in one of the court cases recently decided that Title 42 was un unconstitutional and had to be lifted and gave the Biden administration until December 21st to stop 
using the authority to stop the expulsions. That being said, Damien, it is being litigated in yet another court. If a different judgment comes out, I expect that the cases will have to go to the Supreme Court so that the Supreme Court can determine, you know, which of the lower court's rulings stands or whether it will be a different ruling. So so it's just, you know, it's something where it's uh, could be here today, gone tomorrow or, you know, stick around for the foreseeable future. So um, we're still just closely watching those cases. Warren, everyone on both sides of the aisle in El Paso anyway, seems to agree that immigration reform is desperately needed. But it's also become a political minefield while real lives hang in the balance. You've covered immigration, as we've mentioned, for more than a decade. Where do you think we go from here? I wish my experience could really inform an answer to that question, Damien. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, the surest path forward is no path because that's what we have seen and known for the past 10 years, really the past 30 years, that as long as immigration is an issue that can generate a lot of heated debate and motivate voters, but but as an issue, not an actual solution, if that makes sense. So, you know, Republicans can very quickly stir up their base around issues of immigration. And it's almost beneficial to them to not solve the problems because it's an issue that motivates voters to the polls. On the Democrat side, we have seen that even when the Democrats have a majority in both houses of Congress and Congress is the one that really needs to to create a reform package that that they haven't they haven't used that cloud to do anything meaningful. So, you know, I think both parties are at fault here. There needs to be some kind of leadership, political leadership that can rally people of all political stripes around solutions that could you know, the the issues of immigration should not be focused on the border. There are problems that need to be resolved. And if if the problem arrives at the border, it's sort of too late, if that makes sense. There are issues within our visa system, within our legal migration system uh, that is so outdated, that needs updating, that needs, you know, a real conversation that would require a lot of compromise, I think, from from people on all sides of the issue. And compromise is not in fashion right now. I think I can say that. <laughs> and Lauren, um, certainty. I was particularly moved by your conversation with the former mayor of El Paso, Republican D. Margo, because his position seemed to be kind of in lockstep with Democratic positions in so much as we need to find a solution for this problem. The current mayor is a Democrat, but I also wanted to get a Republican perspective in El Paso. So I spoke to the city's former mayor. Hi, Lauren. How are you? Hi, Dee. It's good to see you. Nice to see you. Welcome. Come on in. Thank you. I love how the mayor of Washington and the mayor of New York talk about this tragic, overwhelming problem for them and the dollars it's costing them when it's been costing the border 
for uh, several years the same thing over and over, and they're less equipped with a, le- with a, with a smaller financial capability. Dee Margo is a longtime Republican, but he disagrees with his party's hardline rhetoric on immigration. I thought Trump, he might shake things up and do something, and I was hopeful there. Um, nada. Um, and, and here we are under President Biden. Both houses, both parties, all their leadership, everybody is culpable. There needs to be action taken. It's just a political football that, uh, that for whatever reason, both sides like to punt. Well, you know, I, I don't know, you know, how Democratic, you know, a Republican's views are or how Republican a Democrat's views are are um, in any given situation, except I can say this, that having covered the border for a long time, I think you see politicians on both sides of the aisle, not always, but frequently more pragmatic around border issues than politicians from their own party anywhere else in the country, if that makes sense. So Democrats in Texas and um, sometimes in southern New Mexico tend to be a little more conservative and Republicans along the border sometimes, not always, can tend to be a little more pragmatic and not as fear mongering around issues of immigration and border security. And I think that they will all say that border voices should be the, the, the loudest ones around immigration reform. Now, that's historically not happened. It's not been the case. Um, but, I, but I do think you see a level of pragmatism um, in border politics that is absent elsewhere, in part because, you know, when folks come from a border community, they're less afraid. And it doesn't really work to fear monger when people know folks on the other side, when people have families on the other side. And and so there's, I think, more of a willingness to talk about, uh, you know, the real logistical challenges as opposed to just like the political ones. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I, I think it would be great to hear more border voices from both sides of the aisle leading those um, those discussions in Washington. Do you want to address what happened to little Venezuela in Juarez on Sunday morning? Uh, how might that impact things? Sure. So it, folks who read the El Paso Times will know that there was an encampment that was set up on the south side of the Rio Grande River, just across from El Paso, Texas, And it grew and grew as more Venezuelans were expelled and as others arrived in Juarez and knew they were not going to be accepted into the United States. And it was becoming, um, I think, problematic for uh, Juarez authorities, at least, if not also residents. You know, people had set up tents and it it grew to more than a thousand people. Now, the population was kind of you know, nomadic. There were people who were who were arriving and others who were leaving and some who were going to shelters and others who were coming to the tents for a time. You know, there's no public restrooms. It was really just a very unsanitary situation. 
And my understanding through folks who I work with in Juarez, uh, freelance photographer Luis Torres and others who have spent a lot of time in the camp, including also El Paso Times photographer Omar Ornelas, that Juarez authorities arrived on Sunday morning and had been working for some time to convince people to go to shelter spaces that have been opened uh, to, to abandon the camp, especially families. Some did, some did not, and there was a confrontation on Sunday morning. Venezuelans, uh, those who wanted to stay, were protesting. Some set some of the tents on fire. There was there was some violence. And I'm not sure what the status of it is this afternoon, but I know that uh, both Juarez and Chihuahua uh, authorities are adamant about dismantling that encampment, which I think was also becoming a problem for U.S. Border Patrol. You know, there was kind of a, a little bit of a mass crossing a few days ago. So, yeah, we'll continue to, to follow that story as it develops. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lauren, so much for your time today. Thank you, Damien. It's always great to be on your show. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing reporters' stories about, well, about how we report stories. You can find all of our reporting and sometimes Lauren's reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to Lauren for joining us this week. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. Thanks to USA Today for the extra audio heard in this week's episode. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. You can also find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at The Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time.